Welcome to Truth Well Spoken, the official podcast for McCann Health and an opportunity to connect across disciplines, companies, and countries in our mutual pursuit of endless truth seeking. I'm your host, Matt Silver, and our topic for episode seven is something that affects every one of us in the advertising industry how to win a pitch. And to talk us through this complex topic, there is no one better than McCann Health's Global Chief Marketing Officer, Andy Chamlin. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Matt, how are you? I'm glad to be here. Andy, before we dive into today's topic, what does a Global Chief Marketing Officer do? And can you give us a quick background on how you got here? First of all, I have no idea. So when you find out, let me know. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so I've been with uh, McCann Health for uh, going on 10 years, and my background is somewhat unique because within healthcare, I have been a client, a vendor, a person on the agency side. As a matter of fact, I have been a client of McCann Health's uh, twice during my overall career. Uh, in all seriousness, um, what a chief marketing officer does is make sure that the agency is able to both meet new clients, engage with new clients, and quite frankly, strengthen the relationships that we have with clients uh, on an ongoing basis. All right, great. So on to today's topic. Andy, you often use the following quote in your presentations. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. There's so much behind the process of pitching that we'll get into. But at the end of the day, we're trying to get the clients to fall in love, right? So how do we even begin to do something like that? So that's awesome, Matt, thank you. Listen, first I'll just say a little something to you about falling in love. So Matt, if I was gonna get you to fall in love with me in just 10 minutes or the next 20 minutes that we're gonna spend together, I would not sit here and tell you how much smarter I am about things than you are. Um, that's not how I would get you excited. But how I would get you excited is by telling you an interesting and exciting story, e either about myself or about someone else. And so that is what's so important in terms of getting people to fall in love with you, is making them excited and having them be interested in what you're telling them. Now, what I'll just tell you is that we do this all the time, and in pitches, people wind up only getting around 10 minutes to speak. When you think about a pitch, oh, it's 90 minutes, I can take my time, I can talk to them about stuff. It's actually not true. Each individual presenter gets about 10 minutes and you've got to excite that person that's listening to you to get them to want to work with you. Got it. And now you've also said before that pitch decks by comparison are boring sandpaper. So what do we have them for? And maybe the better question is what should their role actually be? Totally. And I appreciate that. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen is when you put a slide up, it's got 55 bullet points on it and you wind up talking about something entirely different. So the first and most important thing is when you put a slide up, you talk about the story about that one slide and what the so what is. I mean, some of the greatest presenters don't even need any slides, but unfortunately, that's just not the world we live in. The key thing for a slide is to give the most important thing you want clients to remember and tell them about it, not necessarily show them everything about it. So then how do you prove how smart you are without telling the clients you're smarter than them? 
Yeah, and I don't think you want to be, and I'm sorry if I just mentioned that, I don't think you want to be proving how much smarter you are. I think you want to prove to clients that you can make working together exciting together, and you'll be able to uncover and solve solutions together with one another, not necessarily be the agency that tells the client exactly what it is they need to do. Okay, so Andy, you have a clearly outlined pitch process, but I want to focus in on two unique pitch prep meetings, your what it will take to win meeting and the pitch on a page meeting. Can you talk about what these are? Yeah, Matt, absolutely. Thank you. And those are probably our two most important meetings. The what it will take to win meeting is a meeting that we have where we step back and really just think about what our strategy for winning the pitch will be. Not necessarily what the right answer is or what we want to show creatively, but we talk about like, all right, do we need to demonstrate this or that in terms of our capabilities? Do we want to make sure the presentation is short, long, or a lot of conversation with the client or not? These are the types of questions to ask to make people fall in love with us or be interested by us, not necessarily exactly what we're going to say. So it's important to take a minute and think about that. In terms of pitch on a page, you know, the worst thing for a client is not to tell a, uh, a, a tight story, you know, to have a story that kind of goes all over the place. So they, they can't really follow what you're trying to get to. So our pitch on a page process really makes sure we have a red thread through our presentations so the client can take it away and remember you know, what the things that we've said and how we've made them feel. So you've kind of already answered this with what you just said, but how important is rehearsing with your team before a pitch and what should the rehearsal look like? So that's awesome. First, what should rehearsal look like? it should look as pretty close to what the actual meeting is going to be as possible. And that's everything from if it was live standing up to if it's on Zoom, making sure the transitions are right. So that's what a rehearsal should look like and probably more than one. What's key about a rehearsal is a pitch is a show. A pitch is not just, you know, presenting some slides. And, you know, even with like improv theater, people actually rehearse and they know what they're kind of going to say, and they know how they're going to hand off to their partners when they're talking. And so a rehearsal is so critical because you could have the smartest stuff in the world up on the slides, but if you don't deliver it with passion and interest, you know, it's just not going to work. And in that rehearsal session, I would give people the um, autonomy or the guidance to be critical of their colleagues and be willing to take that feedback on because you'd rather be bad in the rehearsal so you can be good in the actual pitch. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so not only is every pitch different, but as an additional layer, every client is unique, right? So how much can we actually expect to understand in advance about what personalities are in the room, who the, the key decision makers are, and um, you know what their company culture is? Yeah, so that's it's a great question and perhaps Quite frankly, Matt, it may have been the, the hardest question or the most important question that you've asked so far. Oftentimes we get a pitch in at, from procurement and procurement says you may not talk to anyone else on the brand team except during the Q&A or at the final presentation. And that really makes it hard. So a couple things. One, we need to make the most out of every interaction that we have with the clients if you only get them once during the Q&A, you got to think about asking the right questions so you can read between the lines in terms of what they're saying. It's not so much about 
exactly what they say, it's how they say it. Are they passionate about this versus that when you're on the Q&A call with them? That's number one. So make the most out of those client interactions. The second thing is you've got to do research behind the scenes. Go into LinkedIn, see where these people have worked, ask people within your agency, has anyone ever worked with them? Those kind of things are really, really important because you've got to understand where the clients are coming from and if, as best you can understand what their behaviors are, behaviors are, how they like to work in a meeting. Some clients just want to be spoken to. Some clients actually want to engage in a dialogue during the pitch. If you can find any of those things out in advance, it can really increase the likelihood that you'll connect with them. So this might be kind of a, a personal question for me, uh, and it might be unanswerable, Andy. I'll be curious to see what you think, but how do you navigate the things that are out of your control, like office politics, pre-existing relationships, or companies who had already made a decision before you even walked into the room? Well, it's another great question, Matt. So here's the thing. When we are a bit more selective about our pitches and we ask ourselves some of those questions, we sometimes turn them down. Because if you're not really comfortable going in to present to those folks, uh, it's not great. Um, I think you know one of the key things here is that you have to take care of your business as much as you can and be confident in terms of what you go into the room with. Um, and you know that confidence comes across where you can make people feel excited about being with you. But it's a very difficult and hard question. So th this kind of takes us back to rehearsal, but um, now that we're talking about the clients and being in the room with the clients, how do you prepare for client Q&A when you really don't know for sure what they're gonna ask? So it's awesome. One of my favorite things to do in the rehearsal is be a pain in the butt client and ask <laughs> yeah. the most obnoxious questions I can in the rehearsal. One reason for that is just to make sure everyone feels comfortable and gets some degree of competence. The other thing in terms of the Q&A, which is really, really important, which is what we do, is that we normally have the most senior person from our team triage those questions. So in the event that that person feels like it's kind of unanswerable or we want to avoid it, that person usually takes it on and takes care, takes care of it there. The final thing is also, you know, when you're with your team in rehearsals, everybody knows kind of what those hard questions might be, but you've mm -hmm. got to be comfortable enough with your colleagues to prepare and work on that question before the meeting. I mean, before, you know, during the rehearsal and before the pitch. I mean, one of the ways and the tricks of the trade that we have is we take note of what those questions are throughout our pitch development process and make sure that we're either answering them in our slides or by the end, we know how to respond to them. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, okay, so let's say we've put together the world's greatest presentation and we have a good understanding of the clients. Every agency we're pitching against has their own secret sauce, proprietary tools, and possibly even comparable, if not identical, insights and creative campaigns. So how do we stand out against the competition? All right, well, here, unfortunately, I'm giving away one thing, but number one is I always like to try and go first because if everyone's going to wind up saying something similar, I at least want to be, or we at least want to be the ones to say it first. That's mm -hmm. really important. The next way I think to get over that a bit is in a pitch, try and engage the client in conversation. 
Because if you, even if you have presented something similar to what another agency has presented and you have it up on the wall or up on the screen, you know, talking about it, hearing their reactions to it and getting into a dialogue over it there starts to give each different thing a bit more of a dimension as opposed to necessarily just, you know, the facts on the page. But you're absolutely right. Every agency has their secret sauce and that's wonderful, but really expressing it with passion and having the client understand how you got there is what's probably most important. Okay, so you're the global CMO and this is a global podcast, so I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about global pitches. How do local agencies tap into the power of the network? It's awesome. Good question, too. I mean, we did not have a global CMO uh, up until a couple years ago. And I think one of the things about my job, perhaps the most important thing about my job, is pulling the network together. You know, I have a team that's based in multiple locations around the world, and forming those trusting relationships with people on the ground is really important. One of the other things that we've done to pull the network together is sharing our pitches win, lose, or draw internally to get people excited about working on pitches and they see all the great creative work that's being done and it makes people around the network just want to be more a part of things that are going on and that that has been very helpful. I mean, and besides me just being a really super nice guy and everyone wanting to work with me, you know, yeah. those, those are the kind of things that have, uh, those are the kind of things that have helped. Okay. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that we're coming off an unusual year, to say the least, where pitches were almost exclusively virtual. So now looking forward, when when will we still opt for virtual post-pandemic and what are the advantages and disadvantages? So it's just tremendous. I think quickly, first and, first and foremost, the advantage of virtual pitching is clients are more accepting of having more people participate. I'm not suggesting you should bring a cast of thousands to any pitch, but you know sometimes we wanted to fly someone in from Australia because they really are knowledgeable about the subject or fly someone in from somewhere else, and it winds up being too many people in the room. So one of the advantages has been we can bring more people. And again, I don't want to bring too many people. The, the, the challenge I think is going to be is that we are probably going to wind up having to pitch in the near future in a hybrid way. So perhaps we want to have a couple more people at the pitch, but the client is only going to allow us three people in the room. Would it be cool if three people could deliver the full presentation? Of course, but sometimes, you know, we just don't have the right specialist there. So I think now rehearsal and planning for meetings where we might have people in the room and some people not in the room is going to be something that we have to get used to. Now, what I, I will tell you, the first couple pitches we did virtu virtually absolutely freaked us out. There's no question about that because we've become so comfortable being in the room, using boards, engaging in, you know, body language with clients and stuff. But I think, and we, and we got it, we got it done and we've been very successful with it. But I think now we're going to start transitioning into a situation where we may have both video and in person, and that is going to require a fair amount of choreography. Yeah, uh, I didn't even consider hybrid as an option, but that's that's a really great point that you bring up. Um, you know, more than that, I think anyone who's experienced the inconvenience and the exhaustion of multi-day travel for a two-hour pitch knows it's not as glamorous as people think, but 
there was something nice about going out for a meal with the team after a pitch, whereas after a virtual pitch, you know, I just run to the kitchen, eat a banana, and move on to the next meeting on my calendar. I'm so with you on that. As a matter of fact, one of the things we tried to do in our pitch process when we were in person was as soon as the pitch team was determined early on in the process, we would get that team to go out to dinner because chemistry cannot be faked. And that team during the course of the pitch development needs to become closer together, should start to be able to finish each other's sentences, and that can come through at the end. I'm totally with you also, Matt. You know, I don't go to every pitch. And the downside of that is while I'm with the team along the way for the ride, I don't get that, you know, adrenaline euphoria feeling after the pitch happens, whether it goes well or not. And so, yeah, that's like, you know, bad for me and the teams that pitch. We we don't get to celebrate really that activity. And, you know, a cocktail party over Zoom is not as good as a cocktail party in person. Yeah, that's definitely something that's been missing. Um, All right, so let's talk for a second after the pitch. More often than not, once a pitch is done, it's done, and we move on to the next one. Is there anything that we should be doing after the pitch, like post-mortems or ongoing development practices? I know you mentioned that we should share pitches with each other a little more. Yeah, so there's a couple things there. First of all, you know, everyone knows when the pitch is going to be over. But that doesn't mean you wait until it's over to be planning out how you'd like to follow up. I mean, we've done some interesting things in the past where we've been ready to send posters or gifts or things like that a few days before. So when the meeting is over, those things wind up at the client's desk. Or we hedge it a little bit. We wait and we have kind of something mapped out and then we wait to hear what the client was most impressed upon stick that into either a handout or an email, whatever, and send that through. So that's on an external basis. On an internal basis, it is critically important to go through postmortems. And what we try and do is we try and have an internal postmortem before we've heard the result of the pitch, because that's when we can really get into it and be honest with ourselves about what worked and didn't work. As soon as you know whether you've won or lost, it really changes the overall perception of how things went. Yeah. So we, so we put in place something that uh, both is that electronically that can allow us to capture that. So that is like critical. And then finally, you mentioned it and I mentioned it earlier, you know, showing the broader agency what the pitch looked like is really important. I'm not talking about going through every single slide, but, you know, the strategy and the creative and maybe one or two interesting tactics that we've put together, it really kind of helps show the organization sometimes some of our most creative thinking because you know we're just putting it out there hoping to win i mean i will tell you when we were back in the office you know in our glass conference rooms junior people would see you know the most senior people in the room you know getting into it ripping things off the wall you know always being polite but you know it can be a pretty intense looking thing and by presenting the stuff after the pitch more junior people or less experienced people start to see what was actually going on in the room and it may make them more comfortable to participate with those nutcases, you know, on (laughs) on the next pitch that comes along. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Andy, we're approaching the end of the interview here. So I've got some bonus rapid fire questions for you. Uh, In other words, we're looking for one or two sentence answers for each of these. Um, I I have to ask this first one, 
do you have any idea how many pitches you've actually been a part of and what percentage you've won? Okay, so let's just put some context around that. Do you mean like how many I'm working on today, last week, or over the course of the 10 years that I've been here? I'm looking for the 10 years answer. Okay, that's probably around 5,000, I think, over the 10-year period. Is that is that a, a serious number? Well, when you look at it globally and how many pitches we do globally, that's kind of what it is. You know, I've worked in single agencies, then North America region, and then um, now on a global basis. But we're doing hundreds of pitches a year. That's a wild number. Um, and we definitely brought in the, the right person. And what about, uh, do you have any idea of the percentage you might have won? Yeah, we do. And because this is public, I'd like to keep that quiet, but we're doing a really good job here at McCann Health. Okay. okay. That's um, is pitching an art or a science? Definitely an art, full stop, no question about it. If it was scientific and the client was expecting it to be scientific, it'd be a whole lot easier. This is artistic. There are so many things that go into the pitch going well. It's all about art for sure. That's great. And I love that you had such a definitive answer there. Um, in a live pitch setting, what should your teammates be doing while you are presenting? Oh, my God, that's a great question. They should be looking at you and nodding their head as if it's the most interesting and exciting thing they've ever heard, like they've never heard it before. That is such a telltale sign. If the client looks around the room and the rest of the team looks bored, dead. Might as well just pick up and leave. Yeah, that's great. I love that answer. Um, in researching your decks, we often see Burt Reynolds. Why is that? It's <laughs> a great question. Uh, Burt Reynolds is an interesting, exciting, sexy dude. And, you know, we, you know, he, he's just someone that I've loved for a long time and has real great range in terms of acting and stuff. So uh, he's just kind of been a hero of mine for a long time. Okay, that's great. Um, all right, this is the final question. This is this is outside the rapid fire section. So, because uh, yeah. I'm really curious about this one. Um, so, um, you've done maybe five thousand pitches. So you've seen it all. So, what is your funniest pitch story? All right. So, fortunately, this story is not something that I experienced, but it's a story that I heard. Um, from a pitch consultant who spent many years, I think, in the WPP network. This pitch had two steps to it, a chemistry meeting and then a final presentation. For the chemistry meeting, the client wanted to go visit the agencies and really just see how the agencies worked and what the, what the vibe was and what the feel was. So clients went around to multiple agencies in New York. When this agency then went to make the presentation, which was at the client, so the first one was a chemistry meeting at the agencies, the second one was at the client, this guy went down there with his team, did the presentation, did really nicely, and as it was ending, the clients were in the hallway kind of freaking out because the agency that was supposed to present after them wasn't there. The agency that was presenting after them, because the chemistry meeting was at the agency, had thought that the meeting was back at the agency, not at the client. Mm -hmm. And so that is like funny, but horrible, because I'm sure someone just, you know, I, maybe someone got fired, I don't know, but still, that must have been like the worst day in that person's life. But yeah. I, think it comes to, I think it comes to one thing, which is in new business, 
you cannot make any assumptions. You've got to be sure about things, you know, in terms of like who's presenting what all the way down to where the darn meeting might be. Yeah, that's great. What a, that's a great insight. Um, okay, Andy, thanks again so much for joining the podcast today. It was such a pleasure, and we hope to have you on again soon. Hey, Matt, thank you very much. The questions were tough, but I enjoyed answering them. That's all we've got for today. You can subscribe to Truth Well Spoken on your podcast network of choice and let us know what you'd like to hear on a future episode by emailing podcast at McCann.com. My fellow podcast producers are Abby Nyken, Steve Hoffman, and Andy Fontana. Until next time, I'm Matt Silver, and this has been Truth Well Spoken. Truth Well Spoken.